you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground Podcast. So much to get to. I know, I know. I say that every single show that there always is so much to get to. But this week, this was the week that we finally get to see the Democrats play their hand when it comes to impeachment. And they finally got to the hearings, and they're finally doing something. There's a lot to talk about with it. There's some other stuff I want to talk about with regards to California. So let's get started with our out-of-the-gate monologue. I'm going to stretch some legal muscle here for a second. I mean, I think I have the right to, as I've worked hard to become an attorney, so I think it's only fair that I get a chance to do so. And I will say this conviction with conviction. Representative Mike Quigley is a lying hack for what he said in the impeachment hearings this week. Whew. There I said it. I feel better. If you didn't watch any of the impeachment hearings, and I don't blame you if you did it, there wasn't really much going on, Representative Mike Quigley said something that would make any attorney's head explode. That is, of course, if you aren't an attorney who is so infected with Trump derangement syndrome that you abolish everything you know in favor of my impeachment. He stated that, quote, hearsay evidence is often better than direct evidence, unquote. Wait. Hold up. I don't remember hearing that in law school or when preparing for a trial. Never do attorneys prep for trial and sit in their conference rooms and say, gee, I hope we can find even more hearsay evidence because of how much better it is there than direct evidence. Or do they sit around and say, you know what's missing in this trial? More hearsay evidence. It's because it simply isn't true. Attorneys don't think hearsay evidence is better than direct evidence because they know it is difficult to allow into a trial. Hearsay summed up quickly is evidence that the witness does not have direct knowledge of. They heard it from someone else and are trying to use it in court to prove the truth of the matter asserted. It's like if you were a witness and the only thing you knew what was someone else told you. Now the reason this is unreliable is because it doesn't give the accused the right to cross-examine the person who actually said it. In fact, it's downright unconstitutional. And yes, there are exceptions before everyone says, but Phil, there's so many exceptions to hearsay. Of course there is, but they have very specific purposes and they are the exception, not the rule. And there's always a very good rationale behind it. For example, when someone is about to die, and this is called the dying declaration hearsay exception, and they blurt something out, they take that as allowable in court. Now, of course, you can't cross-examine the person who died. And it's also a belief that because you were about to die, you were more likely to tell the truth in your final moments than lie about something because you have no benefit of lying right before you die. However, this week, there was none of that. Instead, as Representative Jim Jordan expertly pointed out, he's heard church prayer chains more reliable than what Ambassador Taylor said this week. Ambassador Taylor heard from someone who heard from someone else, then relayed to someone else, and then back to Ambassador Taylor. Sounds reliable, right? Ever play the telephone game? Does the end sentence ever come out the same way as it started? 
There's a reason for Representative Quigley's idiotic statement. However, it's because he is trying to help the Democrats by laying the groundwork that there really is something there to impeach President Trump on. And by golly, we have loads of hearsay evidence for you to hear. None of the witnesses could adequately testify to any direct knowledge of any impeachable offense by President Trump. They could only talk about how they feel President Trump didn't do what normal presidents do, which is allow deep state operatives like them decide foreign policy. Their feelings were hurt, their authority was questioned, so they have an axe to grind against President Trump. And don't let the mainstream media tell you differently. This was a very bad week for the Democrats. Nothing of substance came out of the hearings. Nada. Zilch. They will try to say that the witnesses just exposed the deep corruption of President Trump, but they didn't reveal anything. If you're worried about Senate Republicans maybe not falling in line to protect the president this week, this should have solidified it. Unless there is a bombshell witness still yet to come out, this hasn't done anything to push the needle at all. Even CNN's Jeffrey Tubin said how bad it was that nobody had any direct contact with the president, and that's a problem. But the circus will continue, and it keeps going this way. They'll be closing up the tent pretty soon and leaving town. And of course, this is just one more failed attempt to stop President Trump and undo the will of 60 million voters based on nothing more than what somebody said to somebody else. So a lot went on this week, and if you watched the couple days of hearings and the impeachment hearings, you saw that there were a couple people who were trotted out People from the State Department, George Kent, Ambassador Taylor, Maria Yovanovitch was the one on the third day, who, I'm just going to say it, Maria Yovanovitch reminds me so much of Lena Headey. It's unbelievable. I can't, I look at her, I say, this is what Lena Headey is going to be like in like 30 years. That's my, when you look at her again, just think of that and maybe you'll agree with me. But like I said, there's, it's a lot of not, it's a lot of hearsay and you're starting to see that the whole issue here was not necessarily the fact that president trump did something wrong that there's this quid pro quo that there was this bribery notice they've also expertly changed the narrative from quid pro quo to bribery why is that because bribery sounds more uh i guess nefarious is the word you should be looking for it sounds worse to people so then now they've changed the whole idea of quid pro quo because people maybe don't know what quid pro quo means and it sounds a little too formal and legally so people have just gone ahead and said well it's it's bribery that's what it is it's just bribery and and that's it was a, a subtle change but you noticed it it went from the quid pro quo to the bribery because they're trying to do anything they can to just basically drag this out and tarnish President Trump as long as possible. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. There's a good article in the American Thinker, uh, an opinion piece talking about how maybe the Democrats have really painted themselves into a corner with this, and maybe President Trump sort of set them up for this whole thing. But the first thing I want to get to is this article from The Federalist. And it sort of touches upon what I said in the Out of the Gate monologue, which is that it's not necessarily that president trump did something wrong like a legal or an impeachable offense it's that he did something wrong in the eyes of the deep state and the state department and the cronies and the bureaucrats and the desk jockeys who've been there for decades and decades they've been used to being the people who have run foreign policy and now you have someone who's come along 
and doesn't let them do it. And he's figured out back channels and runarounds from the State Department. He's gutted the State Department, leaving it without people filled in vacancies, which is something that Marie Yovanovitch said. She said, oh, he hasn't filled a lot of these vacancies, even though people he said, we don't need these many people here. There's no reason to have this many people. So you can tell this is a lot of the fact that he gutted. Maybe he gutted or he recalled or he changed his mind or he, he changed how foreign policy was done from the White House. But I don't remember electing people in the State Department. And that's the issue here is that you elect a president because you believe in his foreign policy and the foreign policy comes down from him. And as since it's part of the executive branch, the State Department, and he's the head of the executive branch, you elect the president to decide what to do with foreign policy in the State Department. And now you have the State Department who are all hurt and disappointed that President Trump isn't doing exactly what they wanted him to do. So this article from the Federalist is called uh, The Impeachment Inquiry is Really About Who Sets U.S. Foreign Policy. Despite the hysterical headlines in the mainstream media, there was no bombshell on the first day of public testimony in the House impeachment inquiry. It was actually very boring and tedious. But for those who had the patience to sit through it on Wednesday, a testimony of veteran State Department officials William Taylor and George Kent did help clarify what this impeachment inquiry is all about, a disagreement between President Trump and a coterie of career State Department bureaucrats about what U.S. policy should be in Ukraine. To put it more bluntly, the Democrats' impeachment inquiry is about whether the president or unelected officials in the State Department should be able to determine U.S. foreign policy and define U.S. national interests abroad. What we heard Wednesday was a lot of opinions from Taylor Kent about what U.S. policy should be in Ukraine and what serves the national interest there. But if President Trump has a different view, whose opinion should matter? Clearly, the president's opinion is one that counts because the president, not the State Department officials, sets U.S. foreign policy. Like I said, it's the president because we elect the president. We don't elect the State Department people and the desk jockeys to figure out our foreign policy. But in Democrats telling, Democrats telling, which has been dutifully parroted by the media, the impeachment inquiry is all about whether Trump made U.S. security aid to Ukraine dependent on an investigation of Burisma and the Bidens, a quid pro quo, an investigation of Trump's political rival in exchange for hundreds of millions in USA. To maintain this narrative, Democrats have had to insist there could be no other motive for Trump to want such an investigation. But of course, there are perfectly valid reasons to think that corruption investigations in Ukraine might serve other broader interests that go beyond what Trump's re-election. Kent himself testified that such investigations were, in fact, legitimate. Given the history of endemic corruption in Ukraine, specifically a record of corruption at Burisma, whose owner has, been, has first been investigated during the Obama administration using U.S. funds. Democrats have painted themselves into a corner here, arguing that only their narrow interpretation of Trump's motives is valid, when clearly there are other more plausible interpretations that are better supported by the facts. To take one example, Taylor said Wednesday he doesn't think Ukraine owes the United States anything other than appreciation. Well, many Americans, including the president himself, might disagree with that. There are perfectly good reasons to think Ukraine or any other country that receives U.S. aid might owe the United States something more than, quote, appreciation. Maybe such countries also owe America some level of cooperation in advancing U.S. national interests, as defined by the president of the United States, not Ambassador Taylor or any other unelected bureaucrat. 
This is, in fact, exactly how the Trump administration views the matter, which is likely the reason Trump and other administration officials have been so adamant that there was no quid pro quo. The administration's interest in the Bidens and Burisma and 2016 election meddling appears to have been backward-looking, not forward-looking. If Taylor and Kent and other State Department officials don't agree with Trump about this, that's fine. They are free to disagree. They are also free to be annoyed or even concerned about an irregular channel of Ukraine diplomacy. After all, the existence of such a channel itself is a sign that the president lacks confidence in the State Department staff. However, the answer is that the president sets foreign policy, not the unelected bureaucrats at the administrative state. So far, this entire impeachment inquiry hinges on this fact, and the more American people get to see the impeachment debate play out in public hearings, the clearer it will become that Democrats are relying on an incredibly narrow and highly subjective interpretation of facts to justify their claims that Trump tried to set up a quid pro quo with Ukraine. So like I said, this is not about necessarily well here's a it should be about two different things obviously the democrats have painted themselves into a corner they need to impeach president trump represent pelosi speaker pelosi knows this and so she knows that they can they they she was pushed to impeachment she didn't want to do impeachment she was pushing off impeachment for a long time because she knew that there probably wasn't a good chance she's smart as much as people don't like Nancy Pelosi, she doesn't stay at her her position at the point or the apex of her power by not being a smart political tactician. Now, with that said, she knows she was caught in a rock in a hard place. She either had to succumb to the far left, the AOCs, the Rashida Tlaibs, the Elon Omars, the far left part of her party who have been calling for impeachment since the day that they got into office or she could not. And then she, but now she's in a weird political position where she's had to kind of support it and be there. And she knows that it's going to be a gamble. And, And I've talked about this on this show. It's a political gamble in the sense that she knows that those Democrats that were in Trump districts are now going to have to face reelection or they're going to have to face primary they're going to have to face the voters again in 2020 this causes a problem you're not going to get the people who voted for trump and then go down ballot and say well i'm going to vote for the democratic representative if you're voting for trump you already look at the democrats and say well i'm not voting for democrats because they tried to impeach the president i'm voting for and that i support so down ballot you're obviously not going to get any support for these representatives Now, a lot of these Democrats who are moderate Democrats in Trump districts are going to face a hard backlash from these impeachment hearings. They're going to put this off as long as possible. They're going to do this this impeachment query. They're going to do these hearings. They're going to do this little circus for as long as possible, but they can't keep it up for a whole nother year. That would be impossible. You're going to run out of witnesses unless all of a sudden you start producing fake witnesses or I wouldn't put it past Adam Schiff to start coming up with false evidence or doctored evidence. But either way, they're going to have to vote on this. And the far left are not just going to sit by and be happy with the fact that they had an impeachment inquiry. They want Trump gone. They want him shamed out of office and they want him out. So there's no reason why this is not going to go to a vote. And Nancy Pelosi knows this. She knows she's going to be stuck sending this to a vote. 
and that she could potentially lose her speakership over this impeachment come 2020. However, it's either that or the far left goes out there and screams about how Nancy Pelosi is protecting Trump or that he, you know, getting that far left riled up. So it's really a tough position for her. She went with the impeachment thing. She's letting Adam Schiff run it. Adam Schiff was probably the most despicable representative in all of Congress because of the way he lies and controls things and the way he does everything so underhandedly. You could tell the guy does not have genuine motives. He has one motive, and that's to carry out the dirty deeds of the Democrats and the left. So with that, there's a good opinion article in The American Thinker. And it talks about, the title of it is, it could it be that Trump has been setting up the left all along? Now, a lot of people, if you remember, if you're a fan of going on Reddit or 4chan or any of those things, they're always talking about this idea of 40 chess and this whole, it sort of became a meme at a point that President Trump is always engaged in 40 chess or 36D underwater basket weaving chess or whatever you want to call it. But this article makes the argument that maybe he knew about this all along and he kind of coaxed them into it. So again, this article is from American Thinker. I always put the article so you can look at it and read them yourself. I, I edit them. I don't always read the whole article. So you can go and read the whole articles for yourself. I always post the links to them in the show notes afterwards. Um, so the title of it is, it could be that Trump has been setting up the left all along. Why is the impeachment theater that has been entertaining the media swells these past six weeks begun to feel like a bad movie of the week? Tyrant-in-chief Adam Schiff has been thrilling the left with his anti-constitutional Kafowski show trial. Sorry for the pronunciation. I know how to say it. It's one of those words you look at when you read it and you, 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 can't, you can't get it out of your mouth. Leaking and tweaking snippets of his irrelevant not-witnesses testimony in order to bend public opinion to his malevolent anti-Trump obsession. We can all suss out the Schiff-Pelosi agenda. They hope to prevent Trump's election by convincing the American people that he is somehow tainted by a fog of nefarious activities both before and after the 2016 election. Trump is guilty of exactly nothing impeachable, and they all know it, but he's an outsider in their D.C. club of self-appointed privileged insiders, and that is what they cannot, will not tolerate. The interloper must be metaphorically slain in as public a manner as possible. But just who in this current doomsday crisis the left has imagined is going to be the hoisted upon their petard? It's beginning to seem like it may be Speaker Pelosi and the detestable Adam Schiff. It's beginning to feel like our hate-filled and tolerant left is being set up with a long gameplay. If so, then anonymous will be delicious. First Nadler and then Schiff have conducted this so-called inquiry for weeks now. Nadler's hearings were an embarrassment, so Pelosi turned the gavel over to Schiff. Big mistake unless she is in on the con. His ridiculous secret obsession depositions are a joke meant to frighten Trump and his supporters, which is absolutely not working. Now we've been privy to open testimony of three of his chosen not witnesses who contributed exactly nothing to Schiff's tale of corruption. It is all backfiring since they're trying to impeach Trump for what Obama slash Biden did actually did. We've all seen Biden's little bit of bragging about threatening Ukraine that $1 billion wouldn't be withheld unless a certain prosecutor was fired within six hours. 
That prosecutor was charged with investigating the corrupt Burisma Energy Company on whose board sat Hunter Biden. Biden intervened in Ukraine's state government to protect the bribery that was blatantly making his own family fabulously wealthy. And Ukraine was not the only foreign nation. The Bidens, the Carries, the Pelosi's, the Clintons, and the Feinsteins tapped for millions of dollars that went directly into their pockets. For reference, see Peter Schweitzer's books, Clinton Cash and Secret Empires. Ambrose Bierce wrote that, quote, politics is the conduct of public affairs for private advantage, unquote. It is impossible to believe that Trump has not been in on this cabal's fraudulent scheme for a long time now. Admiral Mike Rogers clued him in on the Obama administration's listening and wiretapping on his phones at Trump Tower in 2015. That was why he moved his campaign headquarters to New Jersey. He has known since then what they were up to, so isn't it possible that he's been setting them up for these past three years? Could he be manipulating Pelosi, Schiff, and their henchmen into a world-class implosion? It's beginning to seem this may be true, as the actual transcripts of Schiff's not-witnesses are released and when actual journalists read them, it becomes clearer and clearer that they have nothing. This attempt to impeach is all about covering up their own crimes. If this is true, then Trump will have kept his ultimate and most important promise to drain the swamp. The swamp is much, much muddier and more corrupt than any of us knew. That Trump has withstood the, their three-plus-year calculated attack on him, his family, his friends, and his presidency is a testament to his phenomenal strength of character. That is why he was elected and will be re-elected if the, can't, the left can't cheat enough. The left always cheats, as they did to elect JFK. This 2020 election will be consequential. They will cheat in 2022. This is what open borders and no voter ID is all about. All Americans who love this country and their constitution must vote to defeat these criminals. As Hugh Hewitt always, has always said, quote, if it's not close, they can't cheat, unquote. Reagan had no idea how right he was when he said years ago that, quote, the leaders of the Democratic Party have gone so far left, they've left the country. So, is it possible that President Trump actually did this? Is it possible that he has been setting them up? It's quite possible. It seems that it's almost too fortuitous that this is what came out, that they that they set this up and that this whole Ukraine thing blew up. And almost immediately afterwards, the question was, well, why was he asking them to investigate Ukraine was because of the Bidens. But the Bidens have connections to the Obama administration, and it all starts to crumble down when you look at the corruption that's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine is a hotbed for corruption, and the new president has pledged that he wants to try and root out the corruption. In fact, he said to President Trump, and I'm paraphrasing, you are the model of us wanting to drain the swamp here in Ukraine. We're learning lessons from you. We're learning from you about draining the swamp here in the Ukraine. Which is probably why President Trump is leaning on President of Ukraine to actually start investigating the, the crimes and the corruption that's going on here. Is it possible he did this all along? I mean, we've known about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. We've known about this for a while. This is not new information. It's not something that just came out with the calls for impeachment. With that said, did he calculate that if he could get someone, and this is maybe a tactic he's been using recently, is he started to leak, well, how do you find a leaker in your administration? Who? How do you do that? You send out 
false information on purpose. And you see, it's kind of like you throw it down the tubes and see what pops out. And if someone hears it or you tell it to someone and then that person, and then all of a sudden appears, if you think someone is a leaker, you tell them the false information. And if it gets to the media and somehow gets out, then you know they're the leaker. So the question is whether or not he knew all along that Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, were implicated in this whole Ukraine thing. And he knew that maybe if he went on this Ukraine offensive and maybe he made it look a little nefarious, someone was going to run and tell Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff about it and start this whole impeachment thing. He may have played it that way. If he did, it would be one of the most smartest political moves in American history to know that I'm going to set up the Democrats to shoot themselves in the foot and drain the swamp themselves by saying, by making it look like I committed this impeachable offense with the Ukraine and set them up so that when all of this comes out, when all the information comes out and people start to see why the Ukraine was being investigated, people start to say, well, yeah, why did Hunter Biden, who knows nothing about energy or was never on an energy company, all of a sudden be put on the board of an energy company in the Ukraine making thousands of dollars every month, tens of thousands of dollars every month, not just a couple thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars every month. And this is a firm that's already been implicated in corruption in Ukraine, so it's not out of the realm of possibility to believe that this firm is not acting on the up and up when it comes to doing things ethically or above the boards. So would it be one of the most smartest, would it be the smartest political move probably in American history? Quite possibly if, if he actually pulls this off, but it's been good fodder because what he's done is he's taken this and said, I'm being investigated for the crimes of Obama and Biden, and he keeps going out there and telling his supporters that. And it works. Now his supporters now know the impeachment is a sham, it's another witch hunt, it's Russia collusion 2.0, and they've all looked into it now and said, well, yeah, why isn't anybody interviewing Hunter Biden? Why is no one asking him to testify? I mean, the Senate Republicans are definitely going to want to do that. They once they get it in their hands, you know that the first if they're conducting the trial, you know who they're going to start calling. They're going to call the Bidens, and it's going to die in the Senate. If if anything has been, I was never really that a big fan of the the Senate Republicans. You have too many Senate Republicans like the Lindsey Graham's and the Mitt Romney's who you just don't know if they're above the board if they're above board or above ground when it comes to this whole MAGA platform you know they were reluctant in the beginning I mean Mitt Romney is still an anti-Trumper he'll always be an anti-never Trumper because he got passed over for Secretary of State and President Trump humiliated him and because he did something that Mitt Romney could never do in his wildest dreams which was become president so you have a lot you have a couple of those Republicans there Maybe not enough to swing it and turn it into a supermajority, but you could have enough that could cause some problems. But I think now, 
with how the impeachment inquiry is going in the House, I think if you're a Republican, you can kind of step back and say, okay, I feel like that there's nothing here. This is all a sham. Obviously, this is all hearsay. And Lindsey Graham is a smart, he's a smart attorney. He's a former JAG. Actually, I think he still is a JAG attorney uh, with the Air Force. I'm pretty sure he's a JAG attorney with the Air Force. So he's a smart guy when it comes to law. And he knows this is not how trials are conducted, which is why he's the head of the Judiciary Committee. He's going to look at these witnesses and say, there's nothing here. This is all hearsay. This is all just people saying what I heard or what someone else heard. Or da, da, da. And not only is it bad hearsay, it's hearsay that doesn't prove anything. If it was hearsay that said, oh, well, I heard from someone, President Trump did this and this is the impeachable offense. Maybe that would be worth something. However, that's not really what's happening here is they've been pushing these witnesses and saying, do you, have you in all of this hearsay and all these things that you've heard, is any of it an impeachable offense? No. And that's what most of the, that's what they've all been saying. I haven't heard anything about an impeachable offense. They seem to just be airing their grievances. This is just an airing of grievances for those at the State Department who were either recalled and Maria Yanovich was not fired at common contrary to what people were putting out online and in the Twitterverse. She wasn't fired. She was recalled. Recall just means she had to come back from where she was and she had to get a desk job at the State Department. Not the worst thing in the world to continue having your job at the State Department. And then she was also I think she went to a fellowship in Georgetown. So she's doing all right. You know, they keep putting this out there as these poor sympathetic figures. Poor Maria, Maria Yovanovitch was fired by President Trump. And now she's out on the street and she has not. Believe me, high up people who are ambassadors who have this level of clearance in D.C. never go hungry. There's always a job waiting for them, whether it's the media or consulting or lobbyists. There is or they can go into academia if they want and pull six figures from some of these schools. There is always going to be a job for people who come out of D.C. So don't feel bad for Marie Yovanovitch that she was recalled from the country she was reporting or she was working in or she was stationed in. Don't feel bad for her. She's definitely not starving. She's not out on the street. She's not collecting food stamps. She's doing pretty well for herself. And a lot of people, I think, are going to grasp at straws. I had conversations with more leftist attorneys and they seem to think that stuff is actually that there, there seems to be something there but when you have jeffrey tubin the legal analyst who hates trump on cnn looking at the panelists and saying none of these witnesses have had direct contact with president trump and that's a big problem because legally, it doesn't show that anybody knows what happened. And they're just sort of making this up as they go along. So Schiff is going to continue bringing out mounds and mounds of hearsay evidence because there's all these State Department people who were any of them in the room with President Trump were any of them on the phone call with President Trump. No, none of them were. So for any of these people to come out and say, well, I know exactly what happened. I was there. I was on the phone call. 
it's just all mountains and mountains of hearsay evidence and it doesn't prove anything and so far the hearsay hasn't proved whether there's an impeachable offense so the the circus will continue this week there's a lot more witnesses to come out i would highly suggest you don't sit through it and waste your time because you have better things to do in life than sit around and watch all these disgruntled state department employees uh, talk about how they hate President Trump or think he's doing things wrong because this isn't how we've been doing it. This isn't how it's been going. Well, people didn't elect President Trump to keep the status quo and keep Washington the way it was. And this is my favorite saying. I say it all the time when people ask me, why did you vote for Donald Trump? Outside of the fact that I agreed with his policies and what he stood for and, you know, he was... To me, it just made sense. The biggest thing for me was after years of frustration with these people claiming they're outsiders, like Barack Obama saying he's an outsider and he's, he's the change, change you can believe in. Yes, you can, or yes, we can. Michael Moore, of all people, said it best. Donald Trump is the Molotov cocktail that people have been waiting to send into Washington to burn the place down. And that's what he's doing. He's going in there as an outsider, not beholden to anybody, no favors owed to anybody. He's not connected to anybody. He doesn't owe anybody anything. It's not like he made his way up the ranks and this person gave him money or this person gave him or this person gave him a boost to get him from state senator to senator. It's none of it like that. He just said one day, I'm going to use my personal money. I'm going to run for president. And people lost and people in D.C. are losing their minds because there's an outsider who doesn't play by their rules, is exposing all the dirty tricks that they're doing, and they can't stand it. And I, I continue to believe that's why voters will again line up and vote for President Trump in 2020 is because they think he's going to continue to do this. He's going to continue to gut the State Department. He's going to continue to change how things are done in Washington. Maybe not forever, but he'll at least have riled Washington, D.C. up. So now on to California news. This is an article from the Pacific Research Institute. It's called California Power Outages, A Look Into the Future. Now, we've all been talking about the California power outages and the wildfires that have been going on. And as I'm recording this, it's another dry, hot day here in San Diego. Just when you think fall is here and it's time to bring out the warm clothes and the boots and stuff like that, it gets hot again. And your nose gets all dried out because of the fact that it got so dry again. So the article, uh, again, Pacific Research Institute, I'll post it in the show links. California's great blackout of 2019 has begun as the lights keep going out for millions across the state's northern stretches. What should be the past now seems to be the future. PG&E began shutting down power early the morning of October 9th when electricity was cut to more than 140,000 customers in Sonoma, Napa, Solana, and Marin counties. Those outages and the ones that followed were ordered because they there was a high risk of wildfires. By Tuesday, weeks later, the media were reporting that nearly 2 million Northern California residents were expecting to be hit by the fourth planned blackout of the month. The state has long considered itself a model of progress, always pressing, pressing forward. Yet California now chooses darkness. And rather than being a rare exception, these autumn blackouts are more likely a preview of coming long night. 
a modern state with a modern economy, a state not fighting typhus and other medieval diseases in its streets, would have resolved the problem before the blackouts began. But California's system for delivering electricity is primarily managed by utilities that are lumbering, inflexible bureaucracies operating government-protected monopolies. The entire blame can't be placed on the utility, though. PGME G&E may have provided the spark that started the campfire, but government supplies the fuel for forest fires that turn into raging wildfires, burning everything in their path. Federal environmental policy, driven by activists, has continuously thwarted the use of scientific management techniques, including logging, prescribed burns, and thinning to treat forest fuel loads. In preventing fires, says Hoover Institution Research Terry Anderson. The eco-groups would rather let nature, quote, take its course. While living trees feed the flames, dead trees are high-octane fuel, and there might be nearly 150 million of them in California, says the U.S. Forest Service. Removing them from the areas near homes and other structures, including power lines and equipment, reduces risk. But it isn't easy. Not only do environmentalists oppose their removal, especially in the deep timber, in some instances, government permits are necessary, and on occasion, only a licensed contractor can legally do the job. With California being, quote, a place that nature built to burn, unquote, according to university professor and fire historian Stephen J. Pine, there's no avoiding a tomorrow filled with fires if man refuses to harness his environment. The first two blackouts alone could cost the state's economy $3 billion, says a Stanford professor, as business and commerce have had to take forced holidays. Students have missed schools. Virtue signalers have had to park their dead electric vehicles. It's been weeks of people stumbling around in dark homes, few daring to open their refrigerators for spoiling the groceries. Dining by candlelight has been by necessity, not in hope of romance, and only for those who have gas ovens, which have been outlawed in several California cities and kept manual can openers in their kitchen drawers. And let's not forget at least one person has already died. California is both literally and figuratively entering its own dark age. Decades of blue state policies have fundamentally altered the trajectory of the state. Businesses and residents have been fleeing the slow motion wreck for years and will continue to do so. No longer is California the land of opportunity. It is a purgatory of high taxes, unaffordable housing, and outrageously steep cost of living, crumbling roads and bridges, soul-grinding traffic, and catastrophic homelessness. Each of these is a man-made disaster created by public policy that limits and directs rather than frees and stimulates. Entrepreneurship, once both the heart and backbone of the state, has become increasingly under regulatory assault. Rapid pursuit of green policies promises a third world energy future, the transport of water over long distances, solved by the ancient Romans more than 2,000 years ago and before the, them the Egyptians, baffles today's policymakers. One party controls both the legislative and executive levers and behaves more like a ruler than a representative. Far from advances, these are regressions towards a less enlightened time. California is falling into the shadows. Obviously, it's not that surprising when you look at what's been going on with the wildfires and the energy problems and it seems to be a yearly occurrence with what's going on here in california and a lot of people probably look at it and say well why can't california get its act together gavin newsom likes to boast about how we're one of the biggest economies in the world that if we were our own country we were the fifth largest economy in the world or whatever the number is it keeps going up and down he likes to boast about how great our economy is. I think the economy is great in spite of the fact 
in spite of what goes on here in California. The kind of the economy I've always said could be a absolute ban, you know, it could be a gangbusters economy if you remove the regulations, if you remove the taxes, if you removed the barriers to build housing in this this state, if you removed all the environmental regulations, you could have a economy like nothing anybody has seen here in California. If you took if you could just take the economic structure and the favorable business policies of a place like Texas or Nevada and just kind of copy and paste them into California, you would have an enormous economy humming along, which would not only help those here in, in California, not to mention the help the people here in California who are suffering from homeless, people who can't afford to live, people who are living paycheck to paycheck because the price of gas is too high, the price of housing is too high, the price of food is getting too high, price of electricity is getting too high. You could have a burgeoning state with an enormous, strong middle class, which would probably in turn actually help increase more tax revenue because you have this thriving middle class that will pay property taxes, that will pay because there's there's more business, there's more payroll taxes. But people, the California... I think California, in spite of all, it's pretty incredible the fact that California does so well in spite of how many regulations there are. And they keep thinking, they, they get by on the fact that, yes, California has incredible real estate, it has Silicon Valley, people want to live in California. That's what gets California by. If California was in the middle of the country or up north where there's a lot of snow and it enacted these types of policies, the state would probably be going belly up at this point. But because of the fact that California is such an enormously attractive state for a lot of people, I'm not going to lie, I love living in California. I don't want to live California, but there are a lot of policies that make it hard to live in California. So, despite that, you now have Gavin Newsom who's pointing the finger at the utilities. And these utilities are not completely devoid of their fault, but... You can't have Gavin Newsom just standing around saying it's not his fault either. His predecessor, Jerry Brown, had the opportunity to pass a bill that would allow for these utilities to make the much needed improvements, whether it was putting these wires underground, renewing them, cleaning up, stuff like that to prevent wildfires. Jerry Brown ixnated. So you have the government who's staying in the way of letting the power companies even actually change anything around here. And it's simple solutions. But the greenies and the environmentalists who believe that you just got to let nature take its course, nature is taking its course. Nature is destroying houses. It's destroying property. It's causing more people to have to, to evacuate their homes, lose everything they have. It's putting people in harm's way. Like the article said, we've already lost one person to these wildfires. It is a scary, scary thing when you see these wildfires. But environmentalists and greenies who don't want to change their policies because they believe it's all about nature and we can't do anything. We got to let nature take its course, even though it's probably better for us to actually clean up these forests and limit the amount of fire damage. They continue to push these policies that prevent it. And it's just a, it's an algorithm. It's an, it's not an algorithm. It's a, it's an, it, what, what's the word I'm looking for? 
it's just a summation of what one of the problems is with California. Is when you base real policy, when you base decisions not on common sense, not on kitchen table politics, the stuff that matters to people. How do I put food on the table? How do I make sure I pay my mortgage every month? How do I save a little money for my kid's college? When you don't base your policy decisions on that and you base it on the virtue signaling far left wing of the Democratic Party, these are the policies you get that blow up in your face. It sounds nice to say, well, let's protect the forest and we're not going to do anything and we're not going to clean them up and we're not going to cut down trees and we're not going to do you know, controlled burns to try and keep things under control. Um, then this is what happens. You get these policies that blow up in your face and don't, and they don't, um, they don't play out in the real world. They don't make sense and they end up hurting people. But as long as you get to virtue signal, as long as you get to stand up and say we've done X, Y, and Z because we love the environment or we're, we're such greenies, then that's fine. Again, California seems to always take the position of whatever helps with kitchen table politics, whatever helps with kitchen table politics, let's do the complete opposite of that because it doesn't make any sense. So this last article I want to read is uh, called The California Exodus is Real. And it's written by Ronald Stein and Fox and the Hounds. Uh, again, I'll post the link in the webs or in the show notes. Not unlike the Hebrews departing Egypt and the Okies exiting the dust in a famine of the 1930s Midwest, the number of Californians getting the heck out of Dodge, so to speak, is staggering. In just one decade, about 5 million Californians left between 2004 and 2013. Roughly 3.9 million people came here from the other states during that period for a net population loss of more than 1 million people. Uh, 1 million people. The trend resulted in a net loss of about $26 billion in annual income. Although foreign immigration has fueled California's population growth for decades, California natives are moving out. Starting in the 1990s, California has been losing more residents to other states than it has gained. For the better part of three decades, the state has experienced a net exodus of residents every year to the point that there are now more than 7 million people born in California that call other states home. You may ask, why the exodus? The high cost of living fueled by, pun intended, the high cost of electricity and other utilities, including unparalleled fuel costs at the pump. Famed humorist Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. In California, everyone talks about the high cost of living, the high cost of electricity, fuels, and overregulation, but nobody does anything about it. Well, a vast number of California voters are take, talking with their feet. They're frustrated with the way their tax dollars are being spent and feel their votes have no, have no say as to how to change it. When you examine the facts, you see the grim data. Some of the highest cost of housing and living in the nation, some of the highest cost for electricity and fuels in the nation, unstoppable costs of more regulations, taxes, and increased minimum wage targeted toward businesses that are just passed through to the consumers of the services and products from those businesses. The frustrating growth of the homeless, poverty, and welfare populations driven by the cost of housing, electricity, and fuels. Frustration towards the deteriorating electrical grid that has allowed utilities to turn off power prior to threatening winds to protect themselves from liability lawsuits, producing man-made blackouts, 
growing congestion from the increasing number of registered vehicles impacting transportation infrastructures that are not equipped to accommodate such increases. The state has chosen to become a leading importer of manufactured goods, electricity, and crude oil rather than manufacture or generate them in-state. California has relinquished its environmental stewardship to other states and countries that have significantly less environmental controls. Getting clobbered by taxes is taking its toll on the psyche and pocketbooks of its residents, along with the high cost of living and doing business. Moreover, since 2008, more than 10,000 businesses have either fled the state or reduced their investments, says Investors Business Daily. From burger franchise Carl's Jr. international vehicle manufacturer Toyota, big businesses are simply leaving the state in droves. The small ones find themselves with no choice but to leave as well. They simply can't compete with the big corporations that stay and take the hit in taxes. With California so lax on enforcing federal immigration law, its open border sentiment is frightening responsible employers away. Businesses that remain in California are stuck in a lose-lose situation. However, here's the catch-22. The Immigrant Worker Protection Act says an employer who follows federal immigration law is now violating California law, is committing a crime, and subject to significant fines. At the same time, it is also a crime if an employer fails to follow federal immigration laws. In California's one-party state, everything in the state, everything is controlled by the Democratic Party and its union allies. The governor and the legislature rushed through a massive tax on gas and diesel fuel along with higher car registration fees and hardly anyone outside the party noticed. I see no good future for anyone in California thanks to the current political environment. It's sad to see this state where my parents were able to make a go with their businesses with nothing more than ambition, hard work, and no big government to get in their way. Even farming is becoming more and more arduous as the ill-informed legislature tries to run the true environmentalists out of the state. If farmers don't understand that care for the land environment, then no one does. As to the state's many complex policy changes like affordable housing, transportation, congestion, and inequality, we need the public and private sectors to work together to address these issues head on. That doesn't so much require partisanship as it requires competent leadership. While many Californians consistently express their pleasure with its current leaders at the polls, tapped out taxpayers and businesses are voting with their feet and leaving the one-party state. Sadly, most who, most who understand the destructive path of the Democratic legislature is on, is on have already left not wanting front row seats in the implosion, leaving little hope of overturning the irrationality that is California politics. The future exodus projections do not bode well for the state as across all counties, all age groups, and all races and ethnicities. About 50% of Californians are considering moving out. Like rats leaving a sinking ship or major stockholders purging their portfolios, the smart ones are opting out of the failing enterprise called California. The exodus is real. So again, just like the last article... It's kitchen table politics and California continues to do exactly the opposite of what happened or what needs to be done to keep people in this state. They continue to hand over the power or they continue to make these policy decisions based on their unions they're based on the environmental greenies. None of it seems to make sense when you look at a policy that comes out and you say, how can it's like when President Trump passed his tax cuts. And it gave more money back to corporations federally. So California decided it would be a good idea. It's because you're saving money federally as a corporation to turn around and now hike the taxes on the state level to recoup the money that you saved from the federal government. 
as if the money you owed is money that belongs to the government. That's the sort of ideas that go through the Democratic-run government here in California. That it becomes whatever is opposite of common sense, whatever is opposite of stuff that helps grow businesses or helps middle-class families, that that's what California does. What, well, you know, instead of saying, gee, and this, we'll never hear the answer of this, even though Gavin Newsom started an investigation with his attorney general, Xavier Bacera, because I believe that they're really going to do a thorough investigation of why gas prices are so high in California. They, they say that they want, oh, we're, we're, we just don't, why, why is gas price, why are gas prices so high? It doesn't make any sense. Instead of trying to figure out a rational solution as to why we could reduce gas prices here in California, they'll have a phony investigation. They'll say it isn't our fault. They'll point the finger at the big greedy oil companies. Oh, it's the big greedy oil companies. It's not us. We don't have anything to do. It's never the government's fault here in California. The homelessness is not the fault of California Democrats. The high for. Uh, price of housing is not the, the fault of California Democrats. The people leaving the state is not the fault of the Democrats. None of it is the fault of the Democrats. Now, they're never going to sit there and admit it. But they continue to push forward these asinine policies that go against and drive people out of this state. At what point do people really start to step back and say, we're in trouble, we need to figure this out and we need to get someone out here or we need to do something, maybe a moderate Democrat, maybe not a far leftist Democrat, maybe there needs to be some sort of revolution. Do Republicans and independents need to join together and say, look, we need to figure this out. Does there need to, I've said this before, there needs to be a different type of Republican here in California. A Republican that wins in Nebraska or in the Midwest or in Texas or something like that is not a Republican that's going to win here in California. So the stodgy old establishment California Republicans is not going to win here in California. What I think, what, you know, is Travis Allen, and I hate to always go back to Travis Allen, but he, he had energy, he had a grassroots, people were excited by him. Is he the future of the party? He may have been a little too conservative. But he was a fighter. And the problem with the Republicans in this state is no one wants to fight. No one, everyone just kind of shows up and says, mm, Hi, I'm the Republican in this race. Nice, very nice for you to all come out. And they'll just take all the abuse from the Democrats. And they won't put up a fight at all. And that's really the issue of what's going on here in California without a fighter or someone who's going to come in and say, we need to change what's going on here. Otherwise, this state's going to go belly up. Uh, you know, then there's no way of turning the ship around. So with that said, I'm going to finish up this podcast uh, on this brutally hot day here in san diego hot and dry day here in san diego is it climate change no it's just a hot day in san diego it just happens um so with that like i said don't watch the impeachment hearings it's not worth your time watch highlights watch recaps of it there's no reason to put yourself through that sort of torture um we'll be back next week 
with another episode. Continue to talk about impeachment, what's going on in California. Um, so with that said, if you like this show, share it, tell people about it, subscribe, leave a review, give a like, whatever. Follow us on Instagram, California Underground. Send any questions or thoughts of stuff you want me to talk about. California Underground at ProtonMail.com. And that's it. Until next time. Remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 